Welcome, everybody, to a very special episode of Work Stoppage. The format of this episode is going to be a little bit different from our usual uh, docket of just covering news stories. We have a very special guest who's going to uh, help us understand labor relations in Iran relevant to the oil industry strike that's going on there right now. And uh, since Dan was the one who put in the legwork getting us our guest today, I'm just going to hand it right off to him. Uh, Yeah, so... When uh, a couple weeks ago, we were just going through the, the usual process that I go through for, for putting together the notes for an episode and came across an article on Left Voice, who have been a, a good resource for us in the past, about an ongoing strike of oil workers and specifically like temporary and contract workers in Iran. And that seemed like a great topic to cover. Uh, but in between finding that article and reading it and, and then talking about it with some other folks online... Uh, I had the, the the great luck of talking about it with somebody um, in another space who was able to put me in contact with our guest today, uh, who can provide us with much more familiar uh, understanding of what's going on in Iran than we would get from a lot of the media coverage that we get in the U.S., because almost all the media coverage that we see tries to twist anything into fitting into an imperialist lens. And then you'll also see sometimes uh, sort of this flattening discourse on some parts of the left that it tries to basically mute everything down into only talking about U.S. imperialism and doesn't actually talk about the relations between the government of Iran and workers in Iran. And so that came across as, you know, a, a great opportunity for us. And so today we have uh, Ida Naku, who is a PhD student studying labor relations in Iran here to talk with us. Hi, thanks for having me. And so just to jump in, I, like many of our listeners, I'm sure are very much in the dark about Iranian society due to the, you know, co- coverage that we get here in the mainstream press. We don't really get a lot of, of in-depth coverage of just normal stories about Ar- Iranian society, it's mostly about, you know, the U.S. saber rattling about some incident or another. Uh, and so to, for some background on this issue, uh, if you could tell us like how unions are generally organized there, could, like whether it, we do see, you know, independent unions at private firms versus state unions at state-owned firms, like comparing that here versus there. Are there legal protections for striking union workers? Are private firms legally required to negotiate with unions? Generally, how common is union membership? That that sort of stuff. Okay, so I I think in order to get to your question, I'm just going to give a little background about the general state of work relations in Iran because there has been significant shifts and uh, changes is is uh, changes in the uh, labor relations in Iran uh, uh, since the implementation of new liberal policies in the 80s. So. Um, such as most places in the world, um, in Iran, new liberal reforms were adopted as a response to the economic crisis of the late 80s, uh, which followed by um, the costly war with Iraq, essentially, um, and also declining oil prices, global economic sanction- sanctions, and all of that kind of challenged the state with an unprecedented budget deficit and economic instability. To counter this, the state adopted a series of economic adjustment policies, um, including the privatization of national enterprises, elimination of subsidies and price controls, and uh, labor market deregulation. Um, Like elsewhere, these policies increase job insecurity, wage declines, and and overall proletarianization and devaluation of labor in Iran. So what happened was that the state didn't only abandon its role in protecting job security, 
uh, by allowing the market to self-regulate and all of that. Um, the state actively began intervening on the side of the employers by imposing significant constraints on labor organizations. Um, this was conducted through numerous reform policies, such as systematic exclusion of a, a large number of workers from labor code, short-term contracts, the rise of human resource contract firms, and also trade union repression. So I'm going to get into each with uh, a little bit of more details as to how they work and what is the uh, current situation is. Um, and hopefully that would kind of answer some parts of the question. So. With short-term contracts, today more than 93% of all the job contracts in Iran are short-term. Um, wow. They're, they're non-standard contracts. They're, range, they're ranging from a couple hours to days to one month to a year. Uh, so they varies in that sense. Um, and employers are given the right to fire workers for nearly any reason, with many threatening layoffs in case of you know, protests or strikes from the workers' side. Also, um, these type of contracts allow employers to conclude a temporary contract after any amount of time. Like I said, some of them are even hourly, right? So employer can rehire an employee on a rolling basis, which then it, it will allow the worker to work for a company for maybe even 10 years without having any protection or benefits. Um, I would get in more details um, onto that when I talk about the oil workers, because this is very important, the short-term contracts where we talk about uh, the oil workers. But another mechanism that um, the state used in order to control and kind of subjugate workers with, was the legal exemption of la uh, workers from uh, labor regulation, which is insane. But this legal exemption of um, workers were, were among the small workshops and or or large workshops uh but but small workshops with fewer than 10 employees um they were they were essentially exempt from regulation uh which which was essentially a significant inhibiting legal factor for workers because uh majority of workshops in iran are small workshops they're like family workshops and all of that so um anybody who works in those workshops that can't really use uh the labor code you know they don't really uh, it doesn't really apply to them um, in addition to these small workshops, immigrant workers, workers in free trade zones, uh, workers in religious institutions, cemeteries, carpenters, city workers, parastatal organization, and even prison laborers, they're all exempt from the labor code. So wow. this is, yeah, this is like, so the, the, there is, there's not an official uh, number as to how many um, workers are exempt from labor works, but um, academic, you know, there, there are academic research on that. And the latest that I look into kind of estimate this number uh, to be around 13 million workers Ooh, to be exempt wow. from labor code, which is far more than those who are supported by the labor code. Wow. Right. Yeah. So this essentially means that most workers in Iran are, uh, you know, barred from basic labor rights, such as a standard eight-hour workday, minimum wages, insurance, pension, and protection against arbitrary dismissal or work-related issues in general. Well, that's interesting. That's like it's a, it's similar to the way agricultural workers in this in the United States are exempt from a lot of the labor protections, but just seemingly expanded to an insanely like broad kind of scale to exclude. Uh, a much larger amount of workers. Exactly. I just want to ask you said you said that there are more workers that are exempt from protections than 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 are protected by by any sort of labor law, right? Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. 
And so some of the oil workers that are on strike today are among the, so the, their refineries are in the free trade zones, right? So you can imagine mm-hmm. this, this whole exemption from labor regulations uh, includes some of the oil, like the striking oil workers as well. Uh, well, yeah, like uh, I just, the parallels between, you know, some of those neoliberal policies that we see here, I think are pretty striking because as you mentioned with the, the small, essentially what, what we'll see here called like a small business exemption, because you'll see, you know, the, all these, you'll see these reforms like for paid sick leave for really any sort of thing, requiring maternity leave, paternity leave, almost any time at the state level, there'll be this big announcement. Oh, we passed this, this great reform to help workers. And then there'll be a thing in there does not apply if the business has, you know, fewer than 50 employees or something. But but then seeing that expanded across such a huge percentage of the people also kind of seems like it's a little mirroring. If you look at like the conditions here since the 2008 crash, the percentage of jobs that have been created that are precarious work or, or gig work that, that, you know, like you're saying it's similar that, that have no, you know, set contract length that are arranged in such a way using such a mechanism as to evade, uh, even the small labor protections that do exist. But so, yeah, those are definitely some, some parallels, I guess, between the, the neoliberal systems yeah. in, in, in both countries that I, I, I certainly was not aware of. Absolutely. Maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but is there like a, a specific way that you, is it, I mean, obviously with it being over half of the workers that aren't privy to those um, laws, is there kind of a easy way to describe the sort of person who would be able to take advantage of the labor law? Is it, is it like industries that are in tech or is it, is it like a certain type of, of, of worker that is more likely to be able to not be exempt from labor law? Yeah, absolutely. So since we're talking about oil workers, I'm just going to use them as an example, the tenured oil workers and their population is, uh, actually pretty, uh, small. They're, they're much fewer than the rest of the workers uh, who are contract workers. They, uh, they, they're, um, the labor laws apply to them and they have actually pretty good bonuses and they actually get a share of the oil companies that they work in. But um, it's hard to get there because um, aside from the technical knowledge and the skills that these workers are supposed to have in order to become tenure, there's also they have to take exams and, and these are ideological exams. Right. So they have to. So like I, I don't really know the exact numbers on top of my head, but a big percentage of tenured oil workers um, are also in SEPA and SEPA is the IRGC. So the Iran, um, um, essentially the, the military faction of uh, the, the government. So there are um, there are actually overlaps with that. So the ideological aspect of it, I would say, is really important than uh, that workers supposed to show allegiances to the government. Mm-hmm. And to this day, in order to be able to occupy those more privileged, you know, spaces and in, uh, in work hierarchy. Okay. That's interesting. So it's like the neoliberal kind of elements of, of the governmental project. There are, on the one hand, like you gestured towards earlier, proletarianizing, increasingly proletarianizing the more at-risk or, or precarious workers. And then there also is kind of like a... Um, a, a, a minor admittance into bourgeois society for the workers that they see as like ideologically in line with them or otherwise, you know, uh, wholeheartedly in support of the program that's going on there. And are it's judging from the way that you spoke about it, it seems like they're really trying to use this kind of like 
these are the the people who get a gold star kind of attitude to justify this whole situation or or to wield it against the more proletarianized gig workers absolutely and um and they're the minority i mean i'm going to get into uh the, the exact number of population in each of the tiers when i talk about the oil workers and you're, you're going to see they're they're absolutely the minorities uh, the majority of workers are precarious workers and anybody who's on the strike today they are the precarious workers okay so yeah um and and interestingly enough uh, iran's government not the census data not even the Labor Department, none of them uh, provide any exact data as to how many workers are exempt from labor regulations in Iran. Uh, so they, there used to be data on um, on the number of workshops that uh, have fewer than 10 or 15 employees, but um, it doesn't exist anymore. So uh, technically, we don't really know how many workers are exempt from uh, labor code, which, oh, okay. which is the crazy aspect of it. Um, yeah. So most of the data that we have are just speculation in a sense. But uh, we know that, so some of the data that I actually look into, uh, these are the official data from the government, that small workshops are the biggest recruiters uh, in, in the labor market in Iran over the past couple of years. So uh, you can imagine that a huge number of workers are not even supported. So none of the 19th century goals of the labor movement, which was the eight hour, you know, uh, day, eight hour workday, or even the minimum wage, none of this applies to them, uh, which is, uh, which I think is pretty devastating if you want to think about mm-hmm. it as workers. Yeah. I mean, the, to, to throw the vast majority of folks back into a situation where to advance their rights would only get them to like, like you're saying, like where workers were a hundred, 150 years ago, just makes that climb, uh, you know, to, to slightly more equitable relations all the harder. Yeah. So, so state, state intervention doesn't end here. So aside from the short-term contracts and legal exemption, we also have union suppression, which has been um, on the news all the time. And I'm sure everybody heard about it because that's the, that's the crux of what um, the liberal media or at least, you know, in the West, I hear a lot when they refer to uh, uh, unions and the state of labor union Iran. But so, um, so after revolution, the state came with a series of legal restrictions to inhibit workers from the right to strike and essentially collective bargaining. Um, even though Iran is an active member of ILO, um, it does not recognize the two most important conventions on the freedom of association and the legal right to collective organization and collective bargaining. Uh. Instead, what it does is that it offers workers the option to join one of the three existing state-sponsored formal organizations. So we have the Islamic Labor Councils, ILCs, at the workplace level, uh, the Islamic Councils of Work, ICWs, at the province level, and the High Labor Council, which is HLC, at the marketplace level, which is like the, the unifying one, the biggest, the biggest council. Um, And as such, the labor code prohibits the formation of any other form of organization with any other title, any structure other than these three formally designated institutions. Okay, so so I get because I I guess that would be one of the interesting, I guess, differences between the the ways that like, you know, the neoliberal state here tends to deal with it because, you know, you have like the government here in the U.S. will pay lip service to the, the, the major business unions that exist here that have 
often been, you know, pretty defanged and, and pretty much in, in line with whatever company they're working at. Uh, well, of course, at the same time, whenever somebody, you know, gets out of line, the state will send in the police to break up strikes. But that's a, that's definitely an interesting difference of, of, it sounds like in Iran, obviously, of course, you know, the repression element still being there, but also instead of having a bunch of independent organizations, which of course, you know, develop through their own labor history here. Um, you have these three types of, of state approved labor organizations that they kind of try to force everybody into in order to control and manage any, and any sort of organization that folks might try to do. Yeah. Is there a high degree of complicity? Um, is there a high degree of like collaboration with these state approved worker groups in allowing the misclassification of, of a large percentage of Iranian workers? I'll, I'll get into why they're not actually representative of workers, okay. but, but perfect. But the, the so the crazy thing is that even though there are these three organizations, formal institutionalized organization, but again, not everybody can um, have them or join them. So like they're still uh, pretty much what is it like uh, limited, right? They're, yeah, they're so not only restricted to the boundaries of formal institution for collective bargaining, but also their access to this organi- organization is also narrowed through exclusionary measure. For example, the labor code only allows workshops with more than 35 permanent workers to establish an, um, and, uh, an Islamic labor council. So if you work in a workshop that has more than 35 employees, then you can have one. But there's also a caveat. So, so according to a smaller workshop, let me say the smaller workshops and the unemployed workers are denied the right to form an Islamic council, right? Right. Um, and so I said workshops with more than 35, but... The large public enterprises, such as National Steel Company or Copper Industry, or even the oil companies that are striking today, they face bureaucratic obstacles if they want to have an Islamic Council. So even though we're giving you these three organizations, we're still going to limit your access as to who can have it, what kind of organization can have um, uh, these organizations or use this organization or just establish them, right? So it's it's very limiting. Right. Only right. if you're... If you're 35, if you have 35 employees, um, unless if they're more like, the, 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 so it's, I, I don't exactly know, it's between 35 to what number? Probably maybe 100, because the steel, uh, the national steel and copper industry and oil uh, industry and all that, these are, these are large enterprises and they have mm-hmm. thousands of workers. So it's interesting that those can't have labor organizations. Right. Um, so they've basically set it up so that only middling sized companies like between uh, like, like you said, like 35 and a hundred workers are the ones, which if you think about it, like most shops in any country that I'm familiar with tend to be either like under 10 people or a, about a hundred or more. So that's exactly. an effective uh, exclusion of the majority of shops. Exactly. Exactly. When 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 workers are able to form those those organizations, what rights are they even really privy to? Because I know in the United States, even with the ability to form a union and the state's protection with the labor board, there are still pretty limited uh, things that the state will even defend you uh, in doing. And 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 with these organizations, these are like these are state recognized organizations, obviously, um, not necessarily bringing into account more like. Um, non-state recognized uh, unions, 
But um, but what what sort of legal rights are there in, for for the organized workers that exist? Like like what benefits do these Islamic workers councils confer onto onto their members? They actually, so historically they haven't really, so not only they weren't representative of workers, but they actually, they kind of function as a tool to suppress and control workers. Okay. So yeah, they, they, they definitely don't organize workers. Workers definitely can't um, strike through these organizations. So it, it's, it's essentially a control mechanism that the state has you know, put in place when they purge all of the labor movements uh, right after the revolution. So it's like a human resources department more than it is like a union. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now about the inter mechanism, like internal mechanism mm-hmm. of these organizations. So they're deeply dependent on employers and the state, right? So both the state and employers have representatives in the structure of uh, uh, Islamic councils. Uh, ILCs, I would just call them Islamic Labor Councils, and they directly control the election result, right? So the Ministry of wow. Labor supervises the ILC election, and candidates must be approved by local representatives and the Labor Ministry. Unlike unions, ILCs don't have the autonomy to free elections. They can't join other organizations. They can't change their name. They can't dissolve or organize labor protests. And um, and these factors essentially introduce serious barriers to the autonomy of the ILCs, making them incapacitated to represent workers' interests in another sense. And so all of this together essentially made Iranian workers at a greater risk of exposure to to the deregulated market, because not only they're being uh, denied the legal institutional resources um, to defend their own rights, they're being actively and there are active mechanisms to suppress them um, all along. Um, There's some interesting, I feel like there's some interesting parallels to the way that the US and, and, and other, I guess, especially like European countries will use like NGOs kind of as like a a funnel or like a safety valve where you have an area where, where people who have, you know, been systematically proletarianized and, and put into worse and worse labor conditions naturally are going to want to, you know, coalesce and, 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 and organize together. So if you set up these pre-existing structures to push people into, you can sort of subvert that natural instinct and and like you were saying and and control it and keep it from becoming you know dangerous to whatever your ruling class goals of the moment are absolutely so uh does the is the lack of representation and the lack of any kind of like democratic structure in these uh organizations that that workers actually do in some instances have access to was that like a major contributing factor to what we see today was it like the 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 duality of not having access in many cases to labor organizations and then also those who do have access uh, finding out that that access is functionally useless and like what other factors uh in tandem with that led to what we're what we're seeing in the oil industry today well um so definitely the not having labor representatives in terms of labor organizations is a big, big factor. A matter of fact, um, 
The first wave of labor unionism in Iran came about in uh, in the 90s and early 2000s, and the and then labor unions and labor organizations. But we do have independently. They're underground. Obviously, they're illegal, but they're still mobilized and they're still organized. And the, the latest example that we see is the uh, is the oil workers strike. Um, there, there is a council, there's a strike, uh, the, the Workers' Strike Council that, that has been organizing these strikes, um, and uh, they, they just do it, you know, an underground, So uh, because everything they do is illegal. But, but um, what I would say is that in many examples, they actually force the state to concede to, to some of their demands. So I would say it, it is significant in that sense that even though with all of the repression that is going on, they still find some some ways in order to get into their demands uh, even though temporary you know even though temporary even though their mm-hmm. bargaining power has been significantly reduced with all of these new liberal you know policies all of these repression of unions and all of that but at the same time they're still struggling and they're still fighting um, I'm not sure if I answer your question. Uh, no, that's fine. I mean, um, just uh, is is the is the Iranian government and our major uh, corporations in the country trying to to turn like uh, in the United States we see this uh, behavior where the ruling class will try and present the lack of labor rights as some kind of like failing on the workers part or as some kind of like, uh, you know, uh, basic administrative oversight. Is that kind, is that the kind of thing that gets masked into, um, the, the incredibly, uh, unnecessarily complex and ultimately impotent, uh, worker like and labor, uh, state approved labor organizations that are available in the country? They, they don't frame it that way, but what the government is do, uh, does is uh, they, they mainly blame it on different factions, different political factions. So, okay. so, so instead of blaming the whole neoliberal strategies of the government, which has been cons- consistent since the revolution, regardless of the political establishment that was in place, you know, mm-hmm. uh, regardless if they were ref- reformists or, you know, hardliners, the, the, the economic plans has been always this way, right? Has been always new liberal. So what they do instead is that um, they blame the other faction. So right, right, and and so so let me just like say this. I think these oil strikes are interesting because they started right after the presidential election in Iran. And we know that the, the newly elected president is a hardliner and uh, and we don't really think everything anything going to get better. Uh, but the, the, the new president came with this whole agenda and platform of you know, this populist platform of justice, right? Like, so so he essentially kind of lead this whole new movement, this justice movement that is coming uh, from the elite, the, the the ruling class in Iran. They're trying to somehow, um, I, I don't know, make all the struggles about the, the few bad apples that, you know, the few bad employers. It is not the, the privatization that is bad, right? It is not the economic uh, situation that is bad. I mean, the economic situation is bad because of the few bad apples that we have. And so we need right. to, you know, we need to um, kind of take them to court and we need to, you know, have them to, but we need to replace them at the end of the day with other individuals, with other private entities, right? So that that has been the general um, 
line of the government the past few years. And so, I mean, they won the election, this this new faction won the election, and they, uh, they, they, they want to show that they really care about the labor strikes and labor struggle. Um, uh, so they've been more active compared to Rouhani's administration, uh, you know, checking on the labor strikes and other um, sectors and all of that. But at the end of the day, workers, they, they, they know, they're very conscious about the fact that um, it's not a factional issue. Matter of fact, it's just um, it's it's no matter who comes in place, you know, no matter who is the new government or who is the new um, individual or private, um, I don't know, employer. The system is corrupt from from within. So what has been going on is that workers are consciously um, uh, targeting new liberalism, privatization, um, and 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 in some cases uh, even global imperialism uh, so mm-hmm. so i would say that uh it's a little bit different from us in a sense that since there is no labor organization it's not blamed on labor organizations or you know the labor parties we don't have any parties they 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 were all purged um so it it's just the government it's all the government so they have to right. justify it on their own side so i want to go back just a tiny bit to the idea of these illegal organizations these illegal like worker unions and i was wondering to what level are they illegal are they just without support from any sort of government institution or uh or is there like heavy repression i mean in the united states it's very common for police to be strike breakers i'm guessing there's at least something vaguely similar there but i was wondering to like to what extent is it the illegal organization in that those illegal organizations would be um repressed i mean so the, the latest example is that 700 of the oil workers in tehran refineries were arrested right so for the for the most wow. recent for the most recent strikes and a lot of them were actually fired because of the strikes, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, suppression is real, and and um, and there there there's always policing of the protest and all of the strikes and all of that. But something that I keep hearing during these uh, this this new round of oil strikes, and even before that, other other sectors, other industrial sectors that are striking, is that we have nothing to lose but our chains, right? The economic oh, situation yeah. is actually dire. So and and poverty is real, right? Half of the mm, population, yeah. half of the 80 million population in Iran lives under poverty right now. Wow. Okay. Um, the inflation is 40 percent, right? So the the, wow. the economic this is a real economic crisis that we're dealing with in Iran. That's interesting because there's almost a parallel in the flattening of the uh, conditions of the workers in Iran and the way that the the government and these large institutions are trying to say, oh, there's just a few bad apples here. Oh, we just need to have more like progressive institutions to replace the old ones. And the way that I see um, the structural denialism about what goes on in Iran from the Western and United States media, where they refuse to even mention like the sanctions and the embargo as, as a contributing factor um, whatsoever. And it just, uh, there's, there's like a a little thread of liberalism that, that ties those two uh, together really, really neatly. Absolutely. And I think the, um, just to go back a little bit to what you were talking about with the the political uh like mechanisms by which the the two like primary like factions will blame each other really just reminds me of you'll see I've seen like over the last year or so you've seen some folks within like the Republican Party here in the US try to take this populist route of attacking like 
uh, Amazon or tech companies as if because they have some disagreement with some statement they made about being too woke or, or some nonsense and trying to pass that off as if they're pro worker in any way when really like all they're doing is trying to obscure the issue and, and really trying to, you know, divert worker attention away from the, like you're saying, the systemic problems that are creating these things and, and pointing it to a couple of individual actors. And so to, to see the, the parallel tactics there, I, th I think is, is really striking. Yeah. It's as uh, somebody said, it's one economy, <laughs> di yeah. different modalities <laughs> in terms of uh, political, political states, nation states, but it's, it's all one thing everywhere. It's one struggle. Yeah, for sure. So like, so we've talked about, you know, some of the basic background for 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 labor conditions across the country uh, so getting into like the specific the oil strike that's going on right now can you get into basically like what are the specific conditions that workers there face that have have led to this like we've talked a little bit already about the you know multi the tiers of employees there and, and I, I just but before you get into it like that was something that immediately struck me in the article was a parallel between like, we'll see this in a lot of tech workers where like, for instance, Google will have, you know, they'll, they'll show these, all these stories about how wonderful it is to work there. If you're a Google employee. And then if you look into it, it's like, Oh, okay. About 20% of the employees are actually permanent employees. And the vast majority are contract workers who have access to none of those benefits and none of those rights. And, and so uh, the, the article that I had originally read about this, you know, really focused on that. But in addition to, you know, that, like, what are the general conditions that led to this strike, like the background for it, that, that sort of stuff? So the, the current strike, the strike campaign is called uh, Strike Campaign 1400. And this is a reference to the current year in the Iranian calendar, where we are currently in 1400, the year 1400. So it's called Strike Campaign 1400, or, um, or the, another name for it is 2010, which I will get into what it means. But it's not 2010, the year. It's, uh, right. it's 20. So what they're one of the demands of this campaign is to have 20 days workday and 10 days off. So that's why they, which is one of their demands. So they call it campaign um, hundred or twenty take, uh, ten campaign, uh, higher wages for less work. But so so these strikes started in June nineteenth, and and since then it's expanded to include workers in the oil and natural gas industry over one hundred and fourteen company companies over fifteen wow. provinces. So this is this is pretty significant in the sense that um, we have never had such a uh, a broad scope um, strikes in Iran uh, since the revolution, but. But yeah, so the, these workers are the project workers. I'm going to explain what that means. But they're back home, they're back to their homes and uh, their cities, and uh, they they left the work sites empty of workforce. That's what happened. Uh, and this is not the first time they're striking. This is the second year that uh, that the petrochemical workers go on strike. Last year, they their strike lasted for only two weeks, but it was suppressed much faster and easier because they uh, they um, they limited workers. Uh, uh, what is the workers' bargaining power to just the workplace? So, the, so they they were only targeted. The, the, their target or the striking workers were only very few uh, workplaces and companies. It was not as spreaded as it is today. Uh, hence, it was easier to be suppressed. And um, but but at the same time, they they did um, kind of uh, achieve some of their goals, which was which was to improve their wages and living conditions. But this year they came back with the experience of the last year in their pocket. So now um, they placed um, uh, uh, 
special emphasis on the demands to reduce working hours as opposed to just the wages, right? So they're they're actually targeting the very core of the, the contract system, right? They're saying that we want longer contract, we want official contract because most of the contracts are verbal. That's another part of it, that they're not even written contracts, right? They're verbal. Wow. We want longer and we want, um, so in addition to annual wages, increase to annual wages, we want our contracts to be officials. Okay, so about the demands, I mentioned the 2010. Um, currently, the working hour of these contractors, the petrochemical workers, are six day off, six days off for every 24 working days, right? So like they work okay, for wow. two, yeah, they work for 24. And imagine this is dire conditions. So they're in the south side of Iran. The the temperature is pretty high. So in the past couple of days, it's been 50 Celsius. I don't know how how Ooh, how it, wow changes to Fahrenheit, but it's pretty hot, right? So uh, so they work for 24 days and then they get six days off. But this doesn't really include the, the intercity travel time, right? So it depends on where they live. Uh, sometimes the travel time could shorten the rest of the, their, their, their six day off. So their six day off could be shortened to sometimes four days, right? Um, okay. So one of their key demands of this round of strike was to reduce this work time into 20 days as opposed to 24 and then give them 10 days off, hence the 2010 campaign. So now about the hierarchy of oil workers, the oil industry, it's 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 kind of very divided and it's not just a two tier of uh, tenured versus contractors. So um, so we have actually five different categories of workers. Right. The first categories are uh, what I translated into day laborers. Um, and they're uh, they're essentially workers that they that they get paid daily. They uh, they're hired for a max period of a week. Um, so that, that, that's why they're wow. called project workers. They are hired to just get a project done. And after the project is done, they're out. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, so, so the max amount of time that they stay in a project is a week. And then um, they're not so they're not even contract workers, if you want to think about it. Right. They're if they're much, much lower. And so there's no data on how many of uh, uh, you know the workers' populations are hourly, are day laborers. Uh, the second tier are the hourly workers. They're they're they don't, they're not contract workers again, but so they're not yearly contractor. But the con it's kind of funny. Their their contract is only for eleven months. So like at the end of the, the last month of the year, they're being fired and they're they're again um, being recruited the first month of the next year. Uh, so so with this way, this like the fire and rehire make them exempt from labor regulation and the benefits right. that they, they would get otherwise. Yeah, right? we've kinda, seen that crazy. here in the United States, too. That is not an uncommon practice. Absolutely. So these are the hourly workers. They're still they they they, they face a great level of job insecurity, but they're still much better than the day laborers. But their population is estimated to be about one hundred and six thousand workers, right, in the oil sector okay. overall total. The third category are the subcontractors. They they are they have contracts. They have formal contracts. Um, it's official. It's one year long contract, and they're hired by although they're hired by contract companies. They're not directly hired by the oil companies uh, themselves. So these are like the human rights, uh, not not human rights, the human relation contracting companies. Right. That hire them. Are they basically like a temp agency, but specifically for the petrochemical industry? Yeah. Yeah, okay. no, we have we have them all across the board for all industries and all sectors and all of that. Oh, Some okay. of them, uh, the, these these work with the with the oil companies. 
Um, but yeah, so the population of these subcontract workers are estimated to be around 34,000. And then we have contractors. So this is the fourth category. Uh, the contractors are being renewed yearly. So the, the subcontractors, subcontractors, they may not be renewed yearly. So they have mm-hmm. a one-year contract and they may or may not be recruited again. But the contractors are renewed yearly. They're recruited by the oil companies, um, the petrochemical companies directly, and, uh, they, and, they, they, and not through the contract companies. And they also have some benefits and bonuses similar to the tenured one. And there's a possibility to move upward and become tenured. Their population is about 850,000, uh, mm-hmm. these contractors. And the last group uh, are the tenured workers. Uh, they're hired um, and uh, they're hired based on an exam. So like they have to take an exam. Uh, There's a technical and theoretical and also ideological testing and exam. They get uh, their payment, the paycheck get increased um, by time. I mean, based on time and their skills. Um, they also get a share in the company and the stock um, of the company up on their placement. Majority of them are service workers. So like the engineers and desk jockeys. And there's a minority of manual workers, but um, the overall population of the tenure workers are about uh, sixty-four thousand. So oh, compared wow, okay. to so, so yeah, compared to the rest of the the you know the 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 lower hierarchy of oil workers, their population is pretty low actually. Yeah, that's a vanishingly small uh, percentage of the oil workers. So to to what degree, like what? Um, what amount of the oil industry has been brought to a standstill by this strike? Because I, I know that the oil and, and petrochemical industries in Iran do, um, just judging from a quick Google, account for about 15% of the country's GDP. So I imagine that if this were a, a, a relatively uh, large scale strike across the industry, that would be pretty significant. But you mentioned that the oil industry is uh, relatively divided. Are there ideological and labor divides within those different classifications of workers in addition to the government or company enforced kind of stratification? Absolutely. So um, in terms of GDP, I mean, I think it's important to, uh, uh, you know, know that these are the so the the the, the workers are that that are striking today is are are the day laborers and the hourly workers, okay. right? So yep. they're at the bottom of the hierarchy. Uh, right. They're um, they're mainly in the field of welding and piping, right? So they're okay. not the technicians, they're not the engineers or any of that. But also, yeah, oil sector is actually divided. It's very divided. The formal workers uh, don't support the informal and contract workers. Um, mm. this, this pyramid scheme, scheme that the government actually came up with, uh, it's, 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 I mean, it's not limited to oil industry, obviously it's implemented in all sectors, but it, it kind of sown the seed of, um, division among oil workers and other workers mm-hmm. by using discrimination against them and in this whole false multi-layer competition. But as we see this time around, oil workers, uh, the, the tenured one, the, uh, the, the contract one, the, the, the formal contract ones, they did not support the strikes of the more precarious workers. Last year, they didn't support them. They, this year, they actually came up with this whole um, statement at the beginning of the strike that they, uh, they specifically mentioned that they are not uh, supporting the condemned the strike and stoppage of the work. Um, and that I think it's 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 kind of a prime example of some of the material barriers and 
uh, you know, complexity that oil industry and workers in oil industry are dealing with uh, between the formal workers and the, the precarious ones. Yeah. yeah. So you have like almost this like sort of state cultivated like labor aristocracy, like set up there as like a barrier to, to, to prevent, you know, a, a total industry wide, you know, unit unity across, across all the workers there. Like, obviously, you know, we certainly have plenty of issues with, with labor aristocracy type relations here in the U S but it's interesting to see this very formalized structure, like that was like specifically created. It almost seems like almost specifically to, uh, prevent, the solidarity across the the board there and, and, and to then see it's, it's impacts here now, now on this strike, because obviously based on the, the numbers that you were saying, like the vast, vast majority of, of the workers are, are kept apart from these benefits that the tenured workers have, but you're, I'm sure that the government is able to, to then, you know, claim that, Oh, well, this is not all of the workers want these things. You see, we have this segment of the workers mm-hmm. that are all very paid and they support what we're doing. And so you should ignore these strikes. It's mm-hmm. not everybody. I, I assume that, it, that there's that sort of spin that goes on from this sort of thing. Absolutely. So, yeah, like I mentioned last year, um, the um, the tenured workers, they actually and this year, too, they, they released a formal statement in which they formally condemned the strikes last year. They actually they, they last year they didn't only condemn, they actually actively censor the this oh, parallel wow. organizations organizing of the precarious workers that was happening in the oil oil sector. And they, they were kind of suppressing them by uh, so they, they were using this as a uh, as a justification that um, these workers are, you know, they, they have political demands and these political de- they're, they're not just economic demands. Right. Their political mm-hmm. demands will make our uh, situation will politicize uh, the strikes and will will kind of make it um, uh, easier for the state to suppress us. So so these are not us. We, we don't want to you know, we're, we're not related to them and all of that. So there there's no not 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 much of of solidarity, if you want to think about it, among these workers. And I mean, from a material perspective, it, it kind of, kind, I mean, I'm not saying it's justified, it's not okay, but it, it kind of makes sense because you have this like minority of workers that they have everything, but on top of that, they, right. they're they ideologically also online. Like you, you specifically cherry pick workers that are not just, you know, like you're giving them, you're providing them with so much bonus. I mean, everybody wants to work for oil industry in Iran, right? My cousin actually worked for them. He's a, he's a senior engineer uh, somewhere. And, and uh, last year I actually asked him about the protests and he was like, what are you talking about? Right. And this wow. year I didn't even bother to talk to him. But yeah. I, 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 I remember when he was going through the examinations and the physical examinations, you know, and all of the testing that he was supposed to do to get into. But people do that because it comes with a lot of bonuses if you work for oil industry. It, it's amazing. Right. Uh, you you are you're guaranteed job security and uh, so many bonus bonuses. They even give you a house. Right. In the site when oh, you wow. work there and uh, they, they cover all of your um, your uh, your vacations, your your flight, your uh, your the, the uh, wherever you want to reside, wherever you go. So um so it's amazing. But also they, they make sure that they're giving these uh, incentives to people who are ideologically in line with them. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is highly divided um, if you want to think about it. Yeah. 
So I, I guess um, based on the original article that we were kind of going over, that Left Voice article, uh, there was a lot of talk of like um, the the petrochemical industry being the quote beating heart of Iran's economy, and I, I was wondering because it really felt a little bit like you know a, a Western talking point. But but I wanted to know on the ground because you're kind of describing how the um, these these tenured workers do kind of have a sense that that is true and but in in that they want to defend that power that they've gotten from that industry but then also when it comes to these the workers that are striking how much of it um is is also based around recognizing the level of power and and necessity of the the petrochemical industry in in iran um uh, uh as an economic kind of I want to I want to say like choking point, but like a, but like a, a, a you know economic important industry. Yeah, like, I mean, like, it, is it is it similar to like the the political power like, that we see yeah. among logistics workers here in the United States, like longshoremen and teamsters? Yeah, or or like the kind of the the is is there even a sense of that, or is that kind of a manufactured idea? Is it really more about just like the individual people um, just trying to get a good job, or or is there really this kind of because um, the way the way that it's framed very often is is kind of on a on a more nationalist kind of framework of of this is this is Iran's you know lifeblood or whatever is do the workers feel that at all, or is that kind of manufactured by by like a more Western perspective? So in terms of uh, so, uh, yeah, everybody keeps saying that that you know Iran's uh, Iran's an oil is that there's that actual the academic term for it that's a rentier state right so that our, the majority uh-huh. of the the majority of the economy is relied on oil and all of that but but it, I mean the so 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 I mean I, I I actually went and looked this up so the the latest census data uh, shows that uh, the share of GDP which is the growth domestic products uh, production of oil in 2016 was about 19 percent right um, versus heavy industry the share of GDP which is the, all of the growth product um, of the heavy industry is 11 percent. So almost 12%. So there's not much, if you want to think about it, there's not much of a difference uh, between the oil industries and the heavy industries in terms of, uh, you know, how strong these industries are and, and you know, an economy. And therefore, you know, it affects the positionality of their workers, right? So they're going to have more bargaining power, the stronger the, the, the sector is. I mean, heavy industry is pretty, uh, pretty big. Too. The problem is that um, our industries are heavily reliant on import. And because of sanctions, as a result of sanctions, many of the industrial sec- uh, um, workshops and workplaces were, were, were technically bankrupt and they just, you know, closed off. So um, that's one part of it. But say that, um, I mean, this is my personal experience. Um, like you mentioned, oil workers um Oil workers, they they have a very special, um, I, I say, I say, position in um, in labor movement in Iran in general. Because so forty years ago, around the revolution, oil workers uh, strikes were one of the defining moments that led to the revolution, right? Um, and all of the work councils that they were uh, essentially uh, advocating for, and all of that, and um, and they were still active pretty much through the revolution and at least a couple of years after the revolution until the government purged all of the um, council workers, I mean, the council of working workers, activists 
and labor activists completely. And, and that was just like completely silenced the, the labor movement altogether. But I would say historically, labor, uh, I mean, oil workers had a very significant role in, in Iran politics in general. And even now, uh, I mean, the labor strikes has been a part of daily routine in Iran for the past 10 years, right? There's not a day that you would read the news and there's not a worker strike somewhere in the country. So these workers, these strikes are not coming out of, you know, vacuum. I mean, there, there's a back, there's a, at least decades of uh, labor activism behind them. But at mm-hmm. the same time, nobody really talk about other strikes. Like the very fact that mm-hmm. we're here today yeah. talking about oil workers, and not talking about, let's say, half that strike, which happened, like, which is still happening, by the way, today. Today is probably their 20th day of uh, strike. But um, we don't talk about those. Um, and I think it, it kind of speaks to the importance of oil itself and uh, the, you know, the importance of it in, in terms of Iran's economy and all of that. And what is this? Well, you said this other industry is on, on strike. What, what, is, what is, which industry is that? It's, it's, uh, they're all industrial, industrial industry. So it's heavy industry. It's half tap. It's a sugar cane industry. Um, they are among the, the most active, uh, labor unions, I would say. They're independent. They have an independent union, but they have been, um, on the strike since at least 2016. 2016 and Ooh, 17. Wow. Yeah. And 20, 2017, if I'm not wrong, I have a timeline of them on my wall here. But um, in 2017, I would say they actually went on a 300 day long strike um, wow. o- over the year. Yeah. So it's it's insane how consistent and how militant they are. Not not, not militant, not in sense of like carrying gun and all of that, uh, being armed, but, but in ideologically sense of strong, ideologically very strong and conscious. Um, but OK, I have here the actual data. So in 2017, they went on strike for a total of 310 days. Um, and wow. then we have yeah, we have National Steel Company. They they were on joint strikes with uh, in solidarity with half that workers. Um, so so I, it, it, yeah. So some people some people uh, refrain from calling it a labor movement because um, they still believe that because we don't have formal unions, therefore there is no organizations. Therefore, these are all just labor riots in uh, in response oh. to the dire economic situation, right? So there is a huge gap in uh, in academia and academic research and study when it comes to labor movement in Iran. Uh, nobody really takes them really serious because of all of the structural issues that they're um, facing. Uh, some, I mean, including, I mean, Leninists love to say this, that there's no party, right? There's no labor party. There's no strong leftist party to kind of be the vanguard party. So these, these um, strikes are not going to get anywhere, right? So we do hear that a lot. But um, on the other side, what we see in real life on the ground, um, uh, Laborers are organizing. They're using right. independent organizations, underground organizations to kind of raise awareness and to kind of demand for the very basic rights that they're being denied for. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, we try to hold that up as a really important point on our show often is that just because it's not a state recognized union doesn't mean it's not a union. And I think that that bringing that up is is incredibly important. So if there's are there any ways that uh, people who listen to our show can make an effort to support or at least show solidarity with the striking Iranian workers? And uh, like, what do you think is the best um, attitude to have maybe for somebody who's not as familiar with Iran in uh, dealing with this in like um in a in a solidaristic sense or or in trying to find a way to be supportive of these workers. So currently there are labor organizations not so so they're like current so there's something like the NGOs I would say that we have here there are NGOs in Iran that um, are particularly dealing with um, labor movements and they're trying to uh, and they're all underground by the way they have been underground so what I'm talking mm-hmm. about is is not just happening right now but it's been a thing for the past three decades they uh, they go to these working sites they educate they're organized and uh, they they provide them with uh, uh, with strike, um, uh, I don't know what is the English um, term for this, but uh, when you provide them with material support when when they're on strike and they don't work, um, so like kind of a, like a strike bank bank we call it in Farsi. I don't know mm-hmm. what it is in so English, like a strike fund. Exactly, exactly. So mm-hmm. provide them with strike fund, uh, strike funds, and all of that. But but in terms of um, workers or your audience who are American, I. I I think for American workers, it's very important to it's very important for us to confront the fact that U.S. is the heartland of the global empire, um, mm-hmm. which Absolutely. means that what U.S. is doing is that it seeks to dominate the other nations, right? And and it's doing so through the development of American nationalism, which which is propagating this ideology through social institutions, through school churches, or you know other social institutions. And, and American imperialism is bad for workers and the poor around the world, including, in, including inside, including domestic workers, including U.S. Mm-hmm. So we know that the U.S. has a long history of overthrowing democratically elected governments or support military coups. Mm-hmm. Um, the most uh, recent example is in Bolivia, but right. it, it happens mm-hmm. consistently and happened in 2009 in Honduras, happened in 2013 mm-hmm. in Egypt. 2014 Ukraine and and it happened 1953 in Iran right US uh, mm-hmm. backed a coup to to overthrow a democratically elected government in Iran right and so and consistent with that US support oppressive regimes that often suppress the progressive workers organizations which which then leaves the working class suppressed and impoverished while supporting the foreign and domestic investment in those countries and the elites and you know other mm-hmm. corporates and so on so and 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 this is not just just you know the the american nationalism kind of expand to workers too right we have this whole notion of labor imperialism right so which is essentially a labor organization that supported uh, these reactionary foreign policies of us right like the examples include afl-cio right they they assisted the coup in chile in 1973 right i did it I did a whole uh, episode on the collaboration between the AFL and the the CIA for our for our patrons because yeah it's a long horrifying history of of collaboration there and exactly mm-hmm. what you're saying where the the poisonous effects of the nationalism deployed by the US to convince workers that it's in their interest 
to support imperialism when exactly as you're saying, all that does is destroy, you know, the the conditions for global solidarity that is needed to build the workers' movement around the world. And without that sort of solidarity, we can't improve conditions here. And so, it, it, yeah, I 100% agree with everything. Exactly. I mean, what I heard is that most recent uh, years, uh, there has been an attempt to reorient, reorient and advance a new foreign policy line for AFL-CIO. But... But I know that they they were heavily connected to NED, the National Endowment mm-hmm. for Democracy. And I, mm-hmm, I think yeah. I should listen to your episode on that because <laughs> it's pretty interesting. But but we have good examples, too. Right. We have USLAW, U.S. Labor Against the War. Right. They um, they they have done exemplary work in rebuilding solidarity between American uh, Americans and Iraqi trade unions. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think. I think this builds this, this, I think, the argument for why American workers need to build solidarity among themselves and to extend it beyond the U.S. nation state uh, to, to challenge U.S. domination in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think this means that we need to build a global labor solidarity. We must support other struggles against U.S. imperialism, right? Yeah. And, and there has been a considerable uh, uh, debate about the relationship between the current economic situation, the current, just in general, uh, political and economic situation in Iran and imperialism and the sanctions, right? Um, which, which, but, but at the same time, not all of U.S. Uh, domination is as old, is as, uh, is as subtle as, uh, as the sanctions, right? Sometimes it's, uh, I'm sorry, it's not as obvious as the sanctions or the war. You know, the new liberal project, I would say itself, has been a disaster for many workers in the world, and and including U.S. workers, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I, Absolutely. yeah. So American workers do recognize each of these problems um, at their home. Like we were talking about it, you would just like give me examples of how exactly American workers are dealing with the same issues in U.S. Uh, as is in Iran, right? So, so for example, that I mean, U.S. workers are trying to protect eroding union rights. They're trying to build a vibrant workers' organizations. They're as Iranian workers do. Um, and and I so I, I work for New York State. I know that public sector workers in in U.S. I mean, in New York, we are prohibited from collective bargaining. We can't strike. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the same thing in Iran. Right. Workers uh, and, and I know workers in right to work state face legal restriction mm-hmm. on their ability to organize and represent their members. It is a unified struggle across across the board is what I'm trying to say. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. And However, we especially covered it when we were covering the general strike in India because of the neoliberal policies by the Modi government. It's yeah, it's yeah, it's everywhere. And it's. It's the same thing. It's the thing that makes it so exciting when we do occasionally on this show get to report on a strike or a labor action that is being held in solidarity, such as when the uh, longshoremen on the West Coast turned away an Israeli cargo ship or the Wayfair walkout uh, refusing to make beds for immigration and customs enforcement. And uh, yeah, that's a huge part of the reason why those particular labor items are always so much more exciting for me than something that is necessary, but maybe a little bit more typical, like we need our health care benefits or we would like a raise in our wages, please. 
Absolutely. And, and I mean, in terms of new liberal policies, I think it is important to recognize that U.S. and its international arm, including World Bank and IMF, they have a direct mm -hmm. role in implementing new liberal economic policies globally, right? Now, I'm not, you know, there is this whole faction of scholars who believe that, you know, if we have new liberalism in Iran, it's because it was it was forced on us. I'm, I'm not saying that, right? I'm saying that, uh, I, I, I mean, I personally believe that um, the ruling class, ruling elites in each of these countries, the, the states, they do have choice in, uh, in implementing what policies and how, right? Um, ultimately, they want to get out of the economic crisis that they're dealing with, but they are essentially um, implementing the, the new liberal packages, the package policies that are being given right. to them. And at the same time, they can't really resist this, right? Because if they resist this, then they, um, they, they, they're being caught off from the global economy, right? right. And, and yeah, if case, you refuse the IMF, the United States immediately mobilizes economic and sometimes even military forces against you. Absolutely. So in the case of Iran, Iran is caught off um, uh, from the global market, um, not because they did they, they weren't complying with the IMF negotiation. Matter of fact, they've been complying since the 80s. Um, uh, one of one of American left's most favorite president, Ahmadinejad, he he personally was awarded by IMF for his implementation of new liberal policies in Iran. Right. Wow. This is this is something that Americans don't realize just because his anti-imperial, he has this whole narrative of anti-imperialism doesn't mean that he has been personally awarded for uh, for for the new liberal policies that he put in place. But. But I think the U.S. still punishes Iran for not complying with its political imperial problem uh, project, which is the whole basis for the economic sanctions. And so I think workers in the U.S. have a special obligation to confront the militarized foreign policy, and they need to join other workers in the world to challenge free trade sanctions, privatization, and the rest of the new liberal corporate agenda. Um, as we have seen in the case of Iraq, I think acting in solidarity with workers in other countries uh, require us to confront U.S. foreign policy and its military power, uh, which seeks to impose the same conditions that workers elsewhere um, and, and here organize and resist against to overturn, essentially. Um, and and so, like I said earlier, I think capitalism is just one thing. It's uh, it's developing into one international structure, and mm -hmm. we have one economy with local features with different modalities. And this is a globally uh, ever more integrated capitalist class, uh, which is harnessing the productive power of workers in every country. So we need a unified, globalized working class to struggle. Otherwise, we're going to lose. Um, yeah, so th th that's what I think is the, the, the main contribution that American workers could have for any other labor struggle, struggle across the world, especially in Global South. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess on that note, I wanted to know if you wanted to make uh, any last points before we uh, move to letting you plug anything that you wanted to um, was there anything that you wanted to make sure we, we talked about before we wrap the interview up? I think I covered everything. I think the only thing that I didn't cover was, uh, I did, I did talk about their demands, right? Uh, the 2010, yeah, the, the 2010, 2010, increasing the quality of labor camps, better food quality, secure work mm -hmm. environment. 
uh, yeah, official contracts, return to work of the fire, um, fired workers. And I mentioned that 75, uh, 750 striking workers in Tehran were fired. 2000 workers in Asaluya were fired. So, uh, the return, the return of these fired workers are also their latest demand, which I think is pretty smart. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that that's pretty much it. And then I, I have, um, I don't know. Do you want me to read from some parts of their latest statement that came out yesterday? Yeah. Uh, the organizing council. Yes, sure. Okay. Yeah, that'd be great. So, so this is, this is one part of it. They, they essentially talk about what's happening that, which is, uh, which is how employers are punishing workers, um, uh, workers who are striking and what the, the government is doing, which is, uh, it's, it's kind of funny. They're trying to, um, giving the workers the option to have an Islamic council. As I mentioned earlier, all workers can't have, uh, Islamic council. So now they're like, right. Hey, we're giving you this option. Let's have an Islamic <laughs> council. But they're, they're pretty conscious and uh, they, they, they already said multiple times that, um, we, one of, one of our objectives is, is the security environment of the workplace, the refiners. Mm-hmm. And, Having a Islamic council will make it work worse. It's not. It's going to exacerbate. It's not going to make it any better. But but but. So this is what they say, and this is this is a quote. Um, we are no longer willing to continue the savagery and slavery. Our wages do not support our living expenses, and with the rising prices and inflation, our lives worsen every day. Hard work and long hours every day is what we deal with under the uh, scorching heat of summer. And among all kinds of environmental pollution, our lives have been ruined. We are no longer willing to live in such conditions in poverty and insecurity. The humiliation camps are a clear insult to our dignity. We are no longer willing to work and sacrifice our lives for the lack of basic safety equipments. We are no longer willing to do so in poverty and discrimination and insecurity, slavery and captivity. Um, something that they mentioned that I thing I didn't really mention was the the horrifying uh, situation that they they deal with at work and uh, and the the what it, I mean it's not just a job insecurity but all of the um, I mean so many people die because of the condition at work because there mm-hmm. are not so that there's not even minimum requirement for safety at work so those are another um things i mean another issues that um that that uh, include in the demands of uh, secure workplace they're not receiving like uh, personal protective equipment and they're not being like treated adequately for heat related conditions or being provided with substantial enough nutrition or or anything like that as well so so Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's good to know. And just to note, I did look it up for for our listeners who are more uh, accustomed to Fahrenheit. 50C is 122 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's comparable to your average temperature in, say, Phoenix, Arizona. (laughs) For folks over here, that is a. I can't imagine doing any work in that temperature, much less working, you know, welding in that temperature. That's outrageous. yeah, that's incredible. I can I can barely work when it's 85 degrees outside. I don't know about 120 anything. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. so much. 
Well, I guess on that note, uh, I wanted to know, did you have any projects that you're working on or anything that you wanted to plug before we outro? Uh, well, I mean, I'm not, my, my particular research is not on oil workers because, I mean, we kind of mentioned okay. that, that there's so much attention has been paid to oil workers because of their uh, their position in industry and all of that at the expense of dismissing all the other industrial workers. Uh, in Iran, so I'm I'm mainly particularly focusing on the the strikes and protests of workers in the industrial sector, um, in the mining industry, and uh, uh, over the past uh, two, two twenty years, two decades, and uh, and the, the the some of their some of the concessions that they made, and most of them, not most of them, some of them that I, I'm looking at, I'm, I'm particularly looking at for industry. Uh, for for industrial uh, sectors, they um, oftentimes they actually got to uh, force the government to renationalize their their workplace, oh, which I wow. think wow. yeah they're they're pretty uh, this is pretty significant if you want to think about it for workers who don't have uh, quote unquote organized uh, whatever unions or no no organizations. Yeah. I think it's it's uh, pretty significant that uh, they <laughs> yeah they force the government to renationalize and to kick the private uh, the private employee out, employer out of the out of the factory. Wow, awesome! Wow. That's awesome. Well, I want to thank you so much for for joining us and helping us learn so much about this really important struggle. And and really, like, there was so much information in here that was so enlightening uh, that it was I don't know. It was truly truly great to to have you on. And so I wanted to to thank you one more time for that. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm, I'm glad that I got this chance to uh, talk about what Iranians workers do in Iran because uh, they're they're at the margins of uh, of global economy and and even even in the media, nobody really talks about them. Nobody really care about them. Uh, so I think it's it's really important to talk about the most marginalized uh, communities. Uh, which are the workers, the precarious workers. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so we've had Ida Naku on, a PhD student uh, in labor relations in Iran. And I wanted to, yeah, I guess I already thanked you a ton of times. I'm just so excited to have you on. It was really great. Do we have any links or anything like that that we want to put in? I just want to... Is, are there any resources that people should follow? Um, I mean, most of the resources that I read are in Farsi, but I, I could I could look and see if I can find anything uh, okay. in English for you guys. But okay. uh, the only article in English that I saw was the one that uh, Dan shared with me. Mm -hmm. uh, the left voice yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was the only thing that I saw. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I mean, aside from New York Times coverage and, you know, some of the, the some of the other mainstream media coverage of the, which which everybody just repeating themselves. But right. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. There are, there are only even in even in Iran, there are very few coverage of what's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, BBC Farsi is uh, largely uh, kind of censoring the whole thing, not really covering it. But um, I can I can look to see what what can I find. Like I did, I really appreciate you coming on and 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 sharing this all with us because it's been incredibly enlightening. I've le My learned pleasure. a ton from this episode, and and I think it it really hits on I. I some points that we've made, you know, on the show plenty of times. And especially, I, I just want to echo uh, the point that you made about how this highlights the importance of, you know, us workers actively opposing the imperial actions of our state in the way that it suppresses workers around the world through, you know, economic warfare, 
actual military warfare and all these sorts of things. And for us not to get bound up in narrow nationalism and, and become tools of the, our ruling class and instead to, you know, unite with workers around the world because, you know, it, workers rights in Iran, workers rights in the U S it's the same struggle. It's the same fight. Like, uh, workers, you know, we, we need to stand up for each other, no matter which nation we're in. And so I, I think that this, this episode has been fantastic to, to help underline that point. And, and I hope that our listeners really take it to heart. Well, on that note, I think that we will say goodbye. If you want to support the show, we are entirely listener supported. So support us at patreoncom slash work stoppage. But as usual, Labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity forever. That's right. Solidarity, Solidarity. folks.